There is so much to this topic that we weren't able to cover, so may I suggest our episode called Monsters as a Companion. On this season, we'll be covering our vehicles of hysteria, how pop culture and the media shape our psychology and society, and how our national mythologies manipulate the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. Please do not panic but scream for your lives. Yes, the earth, infested by swarms of nightmare creatures. Do not tell your friends the horrifying secrets of Psycho. Welcome to a night of total terror. It's almost dusk. The low sun is goldening the neighborhood while promising, too, the dangerous adventure of coming darkness that for preteens has the feel of a religious experience. You know the North Star that you're heading toward, pushing hard and then standing on the pedals of your bike. It's blue and yellow and fixed in the fading sky, a plastic glowing sign with Blockbuster written across it like a prophecy. And then lush rows of new and old feature productions, the colors, the sections, and what they mean the annoyance at the primary colored kids section, the boredom of the romantic drama row for bored, lonely adults. Comedy, sure, of course. But there's another place too, the dark hall of a haunted house you walk through, the cover of each empty movie case, a brand new kind of monster, a silent jump scare. After the arguments are settled and the choice is made, you ride home in the dusk into a darkened rec room. And then you do it. As you press your finger lightly and the VHS player pulls the tape in like a paranormal force. The vampire's been invited into the house. We've disregarded the Ouija board's warning broken the rules to surviving a horror movie. We've gone hunting the monster. We've summoned the demon ourselves. Throughout American film history, critics have dismissed the majority of horror movies as distasteful, voyeuristic, cheap screams for a voracious audience of heathen punks. I mean, yes to all of that. But what they've missed about these films, from the worst to the best, is how they reflect more honestly the culture of the time than most other forms of popular media. Because horror movies thrive on transgression, since it's essential to their existence, they live unbound from the status quo and popular notions of respectability. So they can tell us things about our culture and ourselves. Brutal truths that are turned into entertainment, made somehow into stories we can enjoy. Stories we can love. Today, we'll be generalizing a lot. And the themes that we're talking about and the way that we're talking about them exist among many other ideas about the sociology of horror movies and what they're reflecting back to us. Our interest is about investigating the dominant repressed fears of each generation, about war, about our own bodies, about moral decay, about changing gender roles, and about our own potential for sadistic desire. 
Studies have shown that there's a correlation between those who are more prone to anxiety and those who are most drawn to horror movies. Our overly anxious little research and writing team have each lived our lives obsessed with horror, in need of horror, and we do believe what the abominable showman William Castle said all the way back in the 1950s. A scream at the right time may save your life. The first time my newest hero, the little orphaned William Castle, knew what he wanted to do with his life, he was 13 years old, watching Bella Lugosi play Dracula in a mid-1920s New York production. As he later wrote in his autobiography, I knew then what I wanted to do with my life. I wanted to scare the pants off audiences. He would drop out of high school after charming his way into meeting Bella Lugosi, who got him a job with a touring theater show. By the time he was in his late 20s, he was directing crime dramas, but by the time he was in his 40s, he found his truest calling, low-budget B-movies, and, like a goth Walt Disney, he made them come alive. The master of gimmicks, or the abominable showman, as he was sometimes called, pumped out campy movies at a prolific rate about everything from killer cockroaches to haunted houses to an axe-murdering Joan Crawford. Often compared to P.T. Barnum, many of his films were accompanied by a kind of live action that incorporated the audience. The dreamy, creepy Vincent Price was a consistent collaborator with William Castle, starring in the 1959 smash The Tingler, a story about a parasite that lives in every person, attached to their spine, feeding on their fear. The spine is crushed slowly when the host is afraid, and only when they scream, only when they unleash their fear, does the tingler weaken. But now, here's the gimmick. Using what he called Percepto, William Castle ingeniously attached buzzers underneath some of the seats in the theater using old surplus de-icing airplane motors from World War II, spending an enormous chunk of his small budget for the movie to attain them. At the climax of the movie, the screen would suddenly go black, the lights would go off into pitch darkness, cueing the projectionist to activate the buzzers, which would cause patrons to jump and cry out, while chilling screams shot out from the speakers. Ladies and gentlemen, please do not panic, but scream! Scream for your lives! The tingler is loose in this theater, and if you don't scream, it may kill you! Scream! Look out, it's under the seat! Ladies and gentlemen, the tingler has been paralyzed by your screaming. There is no more danger. We will now resume the showing of the movie. He planted in the audience fake screamers and fainters, with one woman carried out on a stretcher and loaded into an ambulance, passing the real nurses that were there in case of emergency. The film would then return with an assurance from Castle that the woman would indeed be all right and that the tingler threat was neutralized. Castle would take out actual $1,000 life insurance policies on both any audience member who died from fright and also on the life of his leading man in Bug, Hercules the Cockroach. He created Illusiono with a foil-tinted ghost viewer that you could look through to see ghosts that were not otherwise visible without it. As the years went on, Castle would continue to cultivate this eccentric persona, arriving at premieres in a hearse, rising out of an actual coffin. 
Paired with his film House on Haunted Hill was a big black box beside the movie screen, which at the climax of the film would pop open to reveal a cheesy 12-foot prop skeleton with flashing red eyes that would then soar over the audience using a wire. Kids returning for the second time, knowing the gimmick, would throw their popcorn and candy and soda fountain cups at the skeleton, trying to knock it down. People were having fun while being scared, and it seems like from the plot of The Tingler that William Castle knew how powerful it could be to choose horror, to control the fear by finding a way to let it out. Because how else? Were we going to make it through this life? Eager doughboys stepped onto a soil that more than 126,000 of their comrades would never set foot on again, for they lay behind in the gutted fields of Europe. But for those come home, they were bands and parading nurses. The lines of marchers came on and on until the crowd could contain itself no longer, but surged forward to engulf the ranks of happy boys returned. Then, perfect strangers found themselves in each other's arms, and there was dancing in the streets. Thirty years before the gimmicks of William Castle, the true blossoming of the horror genre in America would begin after tormented, shell-shocked soldiers returned home from World War I with devastating injuries and disfigurements. The public, who had been anxiously, desperately awaiting the arrival of their friends and family, came face to face with those who'd lost limbs, those with serious head injuries, those with scarred, sometimes unrecognizable faces. At the same time, the eugenics movement was growing in popularity. The idea that there should be a process of selective human breeding toward an allegedly better future. Phrenologists, who we now know to be absolute quacks, studied the shape of the head in order to analyze a person's psychology and with it their entire intrinsic worth, moral, mental, physical, material. The ideology placed anyone with physical and psychological differences into the margins of society, regardless of circumstance, along with all people of color and poor, uneducated white people. In terms of the returning soldiers, it's natural that the injuries of others would remind us of our own vulnerability. But it was exaggerated by this new cultural obsession with physical perfection, which meant more than looking good. It meant being good, too. Remember this monster who played the organ in the subterranean cellars of a Paris opera house? Remember this piteous hunchback, a deaf mute, who served as bell ringer of a famous cathedral? Well, my friends, these memorable characters were portrayed by the supreme artist of pantomime, the man of a thousand faces. Lon Chaney was born in 1883 and grew up with parents who were both deaf and mute. And it's been suggested that this helped Lon develop his masterful silent movie technique. From a young age, he worked in vaudeville acts until he landed his first film role around 1912. He was also highly skilled in designing and applying his own makeup, and became known for going to painful extremes in modifying his own appearance. Eventually nicknamed the Man of a Thousand Faces, he would become most famous for his roles in The Phantom of the Opera, now considered the first of the Universal Monster movies, and The Hunchback of Notre Dame, two monsters that frightened audiences like never before. Cheney created the hunchback look of Quasimodo by affixing a 40-pound hump to his own back using putty around his eyes to create that iconic face, even injuring his own eyes in the process. It isn't hard to imagine, and many scholars have, that Lon Chaney was deeply affected by the eugenics movement that was growing around him, considering that his deaf parents would have certainly been considered poor genetic stock, dissuaded or forced to never deliver Lon Chaney himself into the world. 
In a 1925 interview, Lon Chaney said, I wanted to remind people that the lowest types of humanity may have within them the capacity for supreme self-sacrifice. The misshapen beggar of the streets may have the noblest ideas. Most of my roles have carried the theme of self-sacrifice or renunciation. These are the stories which I wish to do. These men, who had returned as casualties from World War I, occupied this confusing category. A social other now, to be sure, but not one easy to categorize as bad or worthless. They were sympathetic not just because they were war veterans, but because they represented something about ourselves and our own fears. Author Ray Bradbury said, reflecting on the career of Lon Chaney, quote, He was someone who acted out our psyches. He somehow got into the shadows inside our bodies. He was able to nail down some of our secret fears and put them on screen. He brings that part of you out into the open because you fear you are not loved. You fear you will never be loved. You fear there is some part of you that is grotesque that the world will turn away from. During the eugenics movement, it's not unlikely that everyone who was not wealthy and white and therefore genetically superior shared an anxiety about being othered, about being monstrous due to something outside of their control. But most Americans would gain no more control over their lives come the 1930s, when there was no great war, just a great emptiness of a desperate nation with an uncertain future. But even amidst record poverty, a monster mash of monster movies would prove a wildly popular distraction from the everyday fear of what the future was going to bring. Theaters would hand out mercifully cheap tickets, and by 1930, 80 million people were going to the movies every week. That's 65% of the total U.S. population. More after this. And now, back to the show. I realize the tragic significance of the atomic bomb. Its production and its use were not lightly undertaken by this government, but we knew that our enemies were on the search for it. And we knew the disaster which would come to this nation and to all peace-loving nations, to all civilization, if they had found it first. The atomic bomb is too dangerous to be loose in a lawless world. On August 6th and 9th, 1945, Two atomic bombs were dropped on the Japanese cities of Hiroshima and Nagasaki that killed between 129,000 and 226,000 Japanese men, women, and children, the vast majority of them civilians. The only time this would happen in world history. Through this atrocity, suddenly Americans saw the power and potential of the negative side of what science could do, and it was absolutely terrifying. By the 60s, polls were showing that trust in science declined from 50% to a third of citizens. As suburban Americans were doing their best to try to stop worrying and learn to love the bomb, science fiction horror began dominating the 1950s cinema and started to express an accompanying fear to this fear of an atomic holocaust. The fear of slowly seeping, unstudied nuclear fallout caused by radiation. As America and the Soviet Union were testing their hydrogen bombs, the Cold War was intensifying, and the tests were getting closer and closer to the actual land of Americans, and then into our own remote deserts of New Mexico. There were reports of fallout dust spreading into the air and water, and the nation was alarmed at the link to rising cancer rates, but far more intensely, they were alarmed about possible mutations in humans, yes, most of all, but also in bugs. Now, human beings have a natural fear of 
arthropods, as they can carry disease. And in 1954, this instinct combined with bugs being the hip new social panic of the time, and thus created a brand new important political issue. Insects were seen as a rising problem already, and the government and companies were using massive campaigns of scary pesticides in order to try to kill them off, especially DDT. But when the attempts at insect control failed spectacularly, the bugs began to seem almost invincible, as the chemicals harmed and killed many different animal species, but did nothing to stop the bugs. Newspapers, scientists, and even the government were suddenly sounding the alarm about these indestructible overthrowers. A Nobel Prize-winning geneticist named Herman Joseph Muller, nicknamed Mr. Mutation, began warning Americans about the effects of radiation. The fruit flies he was testing his theories on were certainly developing issues, and when he published the results, the press called the specimens monsters, monstrosities, mutations. One newspaper wrote, Some have big eyes. Some have one large and one small eye. Some are blind, some are long-winged, others have no wings. Furthermore, when these monstrosities breed, their progeny are also monstrosities. Thus, Muller concluded and told the public, human babies exposed to radiation could be born with two heads. And not only that, the issues would continue down the genetic line into perpetuity. But bugs weren't just vulnerable to fallout. An official spokesperson of the Army Medical Laboratory said, quote, Should man destroy himself with awe-inspiring weapons and inventions, both man and animal could perish, leaving nothing but hardy insects to repopulate the world. A Mississippi representative named Jamie Witten would write in his pro-pesticides book, the enemy is already here, in the skies, in the fields, and waterways. It is dug into every square foot of our earth. It has invaded homes, schoolhouses, public buildings. It has poisoned food and water. It brings sickness and death by germ warfare to countless millions of people every year. Some of them eat or attack everything man owns or produces, including man himself. The media began sharing the most extreme of the descriptions and images from the official 1952 Department of Agriculture yearbook. Ants the size of wolves, enormous locusts whose legs could be used as saws, insects using gas warfare, moths with a wingspan of a foot, beetles so large they sounded like B-52s. Now, I'm not positive how much of that was actually in that official document, but at least some of it was. Just two years later, Warner Brothers' highest-grossing movie of 1954 would be a film called Them, focusing on the fallout of an atomic bomb tested in the New Mexican desert and the mutant ants that would grow large enough to grab a human being in their mandible. The ant's goal? To wipe out all human life on Earth, of course. Yes, cities, nations, even civilization itself, threatened with annihilation because in one moment of history-making violence, nature, mad, rampant, wrought its most awesome creation. For born in that swirling inferno of radioactive dust were things so horrible, so terrifying, so hideous, there is no word to describe them. A whole genre would appear, known now as the big bug movies, with titles like Tarantula, which superimposed a real spider to look a hundred feet tall, the black scorpion, the deadly mantis, Earth versus the spider, and the fly. Generally speaking, there was a nice formula to these films that combined the relief of venting a little of that Cold War anxiety with a neat ending to the story. 
The scientists were often the heroes, along with the government, each insect or arachnid menace defeated by competent authorities like soldiers and the police. It was the kind of ending that Americans wanted, the kind they needed when they stepped out of the theater and its imaginary world. There was also another new authority rising in American culture, trying to solve very different problems, psychological problems, the problems of people and what they can do. Norman Bates in Psycho. Leatherface in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Buffalo Bill in the Silence of the Lambs. Each of these characters had its origins in the same true story, the unspeakable crimes of a single man. No real-life event has inspired more scary movies than the 1957 discovery of an almost unbelievable real house of horrors located in the unassuming Midwestern town of Plainfield, Wisconsin. It was a typical morning in November when a local hardware store owner named Bernice Warden disappeared in the middle of her shift. Her son just so happened to be the deputy sheriff of Plainfield, and when she didn't show back up by the end of the day, he entered the store to find the cash register ransacked and blood on the floor. Following a handful of clues, investigators would arrest local quiet eccentric Ed Gein after they searched his infamous farmhouse. Just a warning here, the descriptions that I'm about to give you are some of, if not the most, gruesome stuff in American hysteria history, but it's also vital to understanding why it affected the genre so much, so skip ahead if you need to. Giving you a little time, giving you a little time, giving you a little time. Okay, here we go. The first horrific discovery on Ed Gein's property was in the decaying shed where Bernice Warden's body was found, decapitated and hung up by her ankles, cut open like a deer. Entering the main house, authorities found bowls made from human skulls, tanned human skin stretched across waste baskets and chairs, and a lampshade made with a human face, a belt made of nipples, nine vulvas in a shoebox, a pair of lips hanging on the drawstring of a window shade. Most impactfully, Gein had made a corset from a woman's torso skin, leggings from a woman's leg skin, and a collection of women's faces that could be worn as masks. Okay, it's over. You can come back. I'm sorry, everyone who listened. The subsequent investigation would reveal that Gein had murdered Bernice Warden and another woman named Mary Hogan, a local tavern owner who'd been missing for three years. It was discovered, however, that all the other human remains came from visits to the town cemetery, where he would exhume newly buried corpses of middle-aged women placed near his deceased mother's grave. To understand Ed Gein like a bearded psychoanalyst might, you must, of course, understand his relationship to his mother. Ed Gein grew up with an abusive father and an extremely overbearing, hauntingly Christian mother who ran a local grocery store. When the family moved onto a remote farm 10 miles out of town, Augusta Gein made certain to derail any friendships Ed was able to make despite his odd appearance and bizarre mannerisms, which allegedly included laughing out loud at nothing. Gein and his brother were essentially confined to the farmhouse while Augusta read the scariest Old Testament passages at them again and again, railing against the evils of sex, even within marriage, teaching them that all women were temptresses, whores, and she imagined them stalking the property line, ready to defile her pure, obedient sons. After the death of his father and his eventually disobedient brother, who a lot of people think he actually killed, 
it was just Ed, now in his 30s, and his ailing mother left alone on this secluded farm. And in fact, that's exactly the way they wanted it. When Augusta finally died in December of 1945, as you might imagine, the 39-year-old Ed Gein's entire reality shattered. Having no idea what to do without the center of his world to revolve around, he boarded up Augusta's bedroom and her sitting rooms, creating a perfectly preserved personal museum, an eerie contrast to the rest of the house that was decrepit, dirty, and covered in human remains. When he buried Augusta in the local cemetery, her tombstone simply read, Mother. Well, what makes these men want to wear girls' clothes? Many things. But as I've said before, it usually starts in early childhood from one cause or another. Technically, each case has the same beginning, just a different set of circumstances. Are any of them actually cured? Oh, yes, many, many of them. In a time of rising anxieties, not just about atomic war, but about sexuality and gender, marked by a new kind of psychotherapy supremacy, this story of Ed Gein hit a major cultural nerve in a way that's influenced horror up to the present day. At the end of the 1940s, a psychologist named Alfred Kinsey's book on the spectrum of sexuality helped spark a kind of homosexual and gender-based panic. Keep in mind that at this time, gayness and gender nonconformity were very linked in a way they aren't now. At the end of the 1940s, a psychologist named Alfred Kinsey's book on the spectrum of sexuality and how everybody could be a little gay helped spark a kind of homosexual and gender-based panic as many psychotherapists began focusing on this so-called deviation and how to cure it. And thanks to Freud, we knew the source, the parents. Abusive fathers, certainly, but overbearing mothers, absolutely. So when Ed Gein's crimes shocked the nation, it wasn't just the depravity, but also the specter of his mother's traumatic, smothering, and faulty love that was to blame for both his <gasps> transvestitism and his brutality two things that would unfortunately become linked together into the present day. More after this. And now, back to the show. All through the 1950s, Americans were getting acquainted with this thing that was called transvestitism then, and also cross-dressing. In many cases, people who we might call transgender today, but that language didn't exist back then. America had also been hearing about riots conducted by homosexuals and cross-dressers, while kids were watching educational films in school about predatory gays. During the Red Scare, Senator Joseph McCarthy would also identify and expel hundreds of homosexuals from government and teaching jobs, accusing them of being manipulated by communists. Gay bars and other places where gender nonconforming people hung out were routinely raided, using vague laws that punished those wearing the clothing of the opposite sex. Police would use this as an excuse to assault or allow street assaults on gay men, cross-dressing men, drag queens, and transgender women. But the movement was not giving up. And in 1952, papers everywhere were reporting about the first gender reassignment surgery undergone by trans woman Christine Jorgensen. A year later, an entire symposium would be held addressing what was also called transsexuality. And this completely wild educational film on transvestitism called Glenn or Glenda was showing widely, and the first transvestite was shown on a TV show called Confession, which reenacted crimes and featured on this particular episode a transvestite prostitute. Here's looking at you, SVU. Ed Gein was said to have been inspired by all this trans visibility. As usual, it was in large part because of hack true crime writers who played up the salacious angle of his transvestitism. 
He was never actually considered a cross-dresser or a transvestite or a transsexual by psychologists who were assigned to the case. In fact, that was routinely refuted. However, Life magazine ran an eight-page spread complete with images and the headline, House of Horror Stuns the Nation, and said that Gein, quote, wished he were a woman. An unidentified investigator would provide inside information on Gein to the Milwaukee Journal, talking all about his Oedipus complex due to his unnatural attachment to his mother. This article said that he, quote, considered inquiring about an operation to change into a woman and even thought of trying the operation upon himself, but did nothing about such plans. But the local crime lab director, Charles Wilson, said when asked about Gein's supposed desire to be a woman, it's news to me. There was no evidence that Gein wished to be a woman, but rather that he was attempting in some way to bring his mother back to life or sorting out his repressed sexuality and hatred of women instilled by his mother, or I mean, who the fuck knows? Regardless, what's still remembered most about Ed Gein is that suit made of women's skin. And the genre of horror would never let it go. This is Alfred Hitchcock. I insist that you do not tell your friends the little, um, tiny, horrifying secrets of Psycho after you see it. The point of all this, of course, is to help you enjoy Psycho more. You see, I like you. I want you to be happy. What more can I say? The character of Norman Bates would be a much gentler version of Ed Gein in the 1960 landmark film Psycho. In the climax of the film, spoiler, but also, come on, Norman Bates appears wielding a knife dressed as his mother alter ego, her corpse preserved and kept in her room in a rocking chair. This film was directly inspired by the Ed Gein case, coming just three years after that gruesome farmhouse discovery and based loosely on a book written about the case. At the end of Psycho, a smug psychotherapist caps off the film explaining in a long-winded and ridiculous monologue with a weird-ass smile the whole time the details of Norman's psychological profile which, to Hitchcock's credit, explicitly refuted that Norman was transsexual. But what do you think typical Americans, not yet well-versed in the nuance of queer theory, took away from this film? For the first time in screen history, a special interval will be provided during the running of this picture for refunding your admission. If you're unable to stand the almost unbearable suspense, the almost paralyzing shock of homicidal... A B-film called Homicidal would come one year after Hitchcock's Psycho. And some would call it an homage and others a direct ripoff. And now, who might be the director of such a film with... Such a gimmick. Our dearest William Castle, ready now to enter the annals of our problematic faves. Because who might be the killer this time? Why, a person named Warren. No, Emily. Wait, a girl raised by a father who demanded a son and bribed the county clerk to get a different birth certificate to prove she was a boy and as an adult is presenting as a man but cross-dresses back into a woman to kill, kill, kill. At the end, all of this is explained by yet another smug psychologist delivering similar information about this transmasculine version of Norman Bates. The gimmick that William Castle used in Homicidal was called the Coward's Corner, a small yellow booth that the audience passed at the beginning of the screening. At a designated time in the film, there would be a kind of intermission, a fright break, that would be offered to the audience members who were too scared to continue watching. But it wasn't that easy. 
Those who couldn't take it would be forced to walk a line of yellow footsteps stuck to the ground while being brightly lit by a yellow light while speakers played the words, Watch the chicken! Watch him shiver in coward's corner! Only then could you exit the theater. Perhaps part of the reason why these films were so popular when they were was that they expressed an unconscious anxiety, an anxiety around the breaking of the rules of gender and sexuality at a time that the government was describing the consumer nuclear family as the best defense against communism, that which defined our capitalist democracy. To many in the status quo, Blurred gender lines literally threatened the national security of a nation already terrified by an atomic bomb and the threat of a communist takeover. But the suburban kids of the 1950s were growing up and they were turning into the radical teenagers of the 1960s as they started blurring all the lines, railing against the very government their parents had compulsively saluted. And everything, including horror movies, would be irrevocably different. Night. Of the living dead. A night with the dead who cannot die. When director George Romero cast Dwayne Jones as the star of his new film, he didn't do so because he wanted to have the first black protagonist in a horror movie. He did it, as he says, because Dwayne gave the best audition. The 1968 Night of the Living Dead is widely considered the first zombie movie as we've come to know them today. In the film, Ben, played by Dwayne, is trapped inside a house with a group of other humans as reanimated corpses are rising from the dead, flesh-eating zombies called ghouls in the film. Ben attempts to deal with both the undead outside and the alive inside, navigating through these personalities to survive. And he is the last one standing. Well, not exactly. Dwayne Jones would later say, quote, It never occurred to me that I was hired because I was black, but it did occur to me that because I was black, it would give a different historic element to the film. It did. Especially in the end, when we see Ben, who is the only survivor in his group, confronted by an armed posse of white guys with barking dogs on leashes and the police. They're all hunting for ghouls together, and Ben's still inside the abandoned house, and when he attempts to come out and present that he is not one of the zombies, the sheriff's deputy shoots him between the eyes. You want to get about four or five men and a couple dogs? There's a house over here behind those trees. We want to go check it out. Thank you go here, Bill. Yeah, Chief. We're going to stay with it till we meet up with the National Guard. All right, Vince. Hit him in the head, right between the eyes. Good shot. Okay, he's dead. Let's go get him. Let's go, Vincent. Hey, Randy, light these torches over here. It's not hard to see why this movie would have resonated in late 1960s America. Malcolm X had just been murdered three years before the film came out, and Martin Luther King was assassinated just six months before the premiere. For the first time, most homes had television, and the news played clips of civil rights protests with images of white posses and police officers attacking black protesters with dogs. Though George Romero said he didn't explicitly set out to make a film about race, he did acknowledge that, quote, It was 1968, man. Everybody had a message. The anger and attitude and all that's there is just because it was the 60s. We lived at the farmhouse, so we were always into raps about the implication and the meaning. So some of that crept in. Before the introduction of Dwayne Jones and the collaboration that provided, the film had been most influenced by the brutality of the Vietnam War. 
George Romero purposefully shot it in black and white with grainy handheld footage made to resemble the news reports at the time that were often still in black and white with the sounds of helicopters, walkie-talkies, and terms famously used in war like search and destroy. But the conversation around this movie in general wasn't really focused on race or war. And the pearl-clutching critics focused most of all on the unprecedented gore, including an infamous scene of a young girl hungrily eating her father's organs. It was realistic blood and guts, something new to the genre. But despite what many of the normies were claiming... Horror was not inventing gore, not even close. The year that Night of the Living Dead premiered, another future icon of horror had been enlisted as a combat photographer and was stationed deep in the jungles of Vietnam. Some 30 years after the death of Lon Chaney, an eccentric Catholic high school boy in Pittsburgh was studying the faces and bodies of his most monstrous roles. Little Tom Savini began practicing makeup first on himself and then on his little friends, making them into the universal monsters. But when they started showing up for dinner with cut throats and burned off hair, their parents said they couldn't play with little Tommy anymore. But by the time he was in his 20s, he was staying on the front line with soldiers, surrounded by extreme violence, death, and the knowledge that he could die at any moment. Still, he would practice his horror makeup in the trenches on the soldiers who would let him. Tom's job in the military focused on photographing the bodies of deceased soldiers, and he was required to capture on film scenes of horrific gore. As Tom has stated many times in interviews, seeing all of this pain through the lens of a camera was the only way he was able to get through it, by shutting down emotionally, by using that lens as a tool of psychological distance as much as documentation. Tom came to the point where he could actually study the severe wounds as if they were special effects, as if he weren't even really there. And he would later say that these images would inform his work for the entirety of his career. It's intense, I know. Here's Tom Savini. Well, when I came back, those emotions were still turned off. I was a zombie. Coming back from Vietnam, I was an emotionless person walking around. Seeing that stuff affected how I was to create makeup effects from that point on. To me, if the stuff I created didn't give me the same feeling that I got from seeing the real stuff in Vietnam, it wasn't real enough to me. After meeting Night of the Living Dead's George Romero, Tom would create the gore for all his major zombie movies through each decade. Dawn of the Dead, Land of the Dead, Day of the Dead, each film carrying its own cultural meanings. Zombies standing in for whatever American zombies Romero identified at the time. Perhaps the most revolutionary thing about Romero's 1968 Night of the Living Dead is that it was the first mainstream horror plot in which the heroes did not prevail. That the lines between the good guys and bad guys were purposefully blurred. The protagonist is killed senselessly, suddenly, and they find no cure for this ghoul apocalypse. The world seems pretty much doomed, and no government authorities swoop in to save the day. It's a very different ending than the neat firebombing of the big bugs by a benevolent, victorious America. Horror movies have always expressed the fears we face together of war, of the vulnerability of our bodies, of atomic radiation, of our changing social constructs. For example, turning the repressed anxiety about the atom bomb and its mutating radiation into a fun, scary story about enormous killer bugs trying to destroy America? Isn't there something to that? Something valuable? 
something of a service? Laughing at our fears together without even knowing it in a dark theater or piled on a couch together in a dark rec room. We aren't exactly realizing that we're fighting the parasite of fear that tightens on each of our spines day after day. In a world full of things to fear and not very many appropriate ways to vent those fears, as William Castle said, maybe we're screaming for our lives and maybe a scream at the right time could save your life. For our next episode, Return of the Horror Movies, we'll look at how the gore of Tom Savini and the subtle messages of that hippie George Romero sparked off a truly bloody future of horror, inspiring all the sex and drug-crazed teenage guts America could ever cut out of their new favorite victims. We'll run for our lives and trip and twist our ankles alongside some scantily clad co-eds, study the slasher film up through the genre eventually referred to as torture porn, and into the social thrillers of today to see what all of this has to do with feminism, the Iraq War, racial justice, and Ronald and Nancy Reagan. So join us next week for part two, if you dare. This was American Hysteria. Next time on the show, Return of the Horror Movies. If you want more of our show, consider becoming a patron for a whole extra second podcast called Walk With Me, where I go on walks in interesting places and talk to you about the metaphysical and the emotional side of reality. You can also get access to our two-hour live variety hour video full of skits, drag, dancing, stand-up comedy with special guests like Alex Jones, Tinky Winky, John Harvey Kellogg, and Satan. Just head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria or click the link in our show notes. You can come and follow us on social media at American Hysteria Podcast on Instagram and at Amer Hysteria on Twitter. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Sound design by Clear Camo Studios, co-research and writing by Riley Smith, and co-production and editing by Miranda Zickler, with voice acting by Will Rogers. Thanks, as always, for listening. And until next time, I'll see you in your dreams. Have a great week. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for Season 9. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.